Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the PBN Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. On this week's episode with the inspiring and encouraging Nico Rittenau. Nico is a medically certified nutritional scientist from Berlin. His focus for his work and personal life centers on plant-based nutrition. As a dietitian, he inspires his clients to consume a sustainable diet of healthy, whole plant foods. In lectures and seminars, he endorses the advantages of nutrition that meets the needs of a growing world population and promotes mindfulness towards high quality food. Nico currently has over 45,000 subscribers on his YouTube channel, which boasts informative discussions on the benefits of veganism, interviews, and an eye-opening selection of delicious plant-based recipes. Nico and I sat down and discussed at length the power of plant-based nutrition and nutritional science. It's a really fascinating episode, and I know you guys are gonna love it. Please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And also, if you're on iTunes, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out. Let's get to the episode. Thanks for joining us on the show, Nico. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Before we start talking about all your achievements now and everything you're doing with your life today, let's go back in time and learn how you discovered the whole plant-based world and the whole vegan world. Where did it all begin? So I'm, I was born and raised in Austria, um, and my first and primary education was in the in the field of tourism. So I was in a hotel management school, and I always wanted to become a hotel manager in some exotic island in the Cayman Islands or somewhere. And for this reason, after finishing the first primary education, I moved to Vienna where I studied entrepreneurship. And on the way to become like a bachelor in entrepreneurship, I came across things like the vegan diets, the environmental aspects of our current behavior and and all these great impact factors that really harm our own future, but also our own health. And in that time, I also came across uh, people that, that showed me the, the health and the environmental and the ethical benefits of a vegan diet. But like many other people, I was not sure if if I could really believe all of that. Because I mean, as many other people, I learned that you need animal products to be healthy, that you need meat for your protein and milk for your calcium, etc. So out of this curiosity, I wanted to dig deeper into the whole field. And at some point, I just realized that I don't want to follow that path of being a hotel manager anymore. I wanted to dedicate my life uh, to something more meaningful. And for that reason, at some point, I started uh, studying nutrition science. At the beginning, more for a private reason, because I felt like if I really want to do this vegan diet, I want to be sure that it's really healthy. And I just don't want to believe things I heard, but I really want to know the, the literature, the science behind it. And that was the reason why I, why I studied it. And let's say probably around the second half of my of my bachelor study, I came across all these great plant-based doctors, Dr. Michael Greger and Dr. Nibanar and Dr. Cole Esselstyn and all the others. And I saw some of them um, speaking at the VegMed Congress in Berlin, maybe like 2015, something like that. So I, I First, I was more into the uh, gastronomy sector and the cooking sector, so I was doing uh, show cooking and, and cooking classes. But when I realized that there is so much science behind uh, the whole plant-based uh, diet, I wanted to dig even more uh, deeply into this topic. So I, uh, from year to year, I changed my path from being or for having the, the wish to be become a hotel manager to follow the route of becoming a nutrition scientist, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm currently doing. I like I, I founded my business. 2014 the focus is on plant-based diets with a nutrition science aspect from let's say 2016 on yeah basically that's it amazing and when it when it came to your childhood growing up like what was some of the kind of food culture that you grew up in was it a very meat heavy culture oh yeah it is i mean i i remember back then when i 
really felt like an outcast for not eating meat. I mean, I stopped more or less eating meat when I was, let's say, probably like five or six. I mean, I then from time to time ate meat, so I was probably like a flexitarian the next uh, 15 years. But I always felt uncomfortable eating meat. I love dairy products a lot. <laughs> I was really like addicted to cheese and other products. But I always felt strange eating eating uh, meat. Uh, but yeah, it was part of the culture, a huge part of the culture. And now it's getting better and better over time. But I think when I did not, uh, if I hadn't left Austria to go to Berlin, I probably had a hard time <laughs> coping with all that. And how did your friends and family react to you kind of turning your back on your food culture? Yeah, for, first it was it, it was crazy. People could not understand it. Um, but I was so far gone in, in Germany that I had not so much contact with them mm. for a certain period of time. And then when they uh, found out about my current work, they were like, okay, he's doing quite well. So obviously there got to be mm -hmm. uh, something to it. With regards to kind of being vegan and being plant-based, like the vegan uh -huh. community is a very strong and kind of dynamic group of people. Mm. Do you feel like you're part of the vegan community or do you sort of see yourself as a plant-based nutritional sort of scientist? That's a good question. I think, uh, I mean, I, I'm using both words. Um, my book has vegan in the title. If you go on my Instagram, you see plant-based um, because I, I feel like both terms have different meanings for different communities. So when I, I mean, if, if you are somewhere and you say I'm vegan, most people know what you want. If you go on a restaurant and you want to have vegan food, great. If you say I want to have a plant-based meal, probably like here in Bali, for example, people, not all people would know what you want. And of course, like the whole vegan movement is in terms of like ethical values, also like very strong. And this is also my beliefs. So when I'm a private person, I would say like I'm vegan and I'm a really, really strong advocate for animal rights. But whenever I'm like the nutrition scientist, I'm trying to hold back my own beliefs mm -hmm. and because I don't want to have any biases when I look at the nutrition science. Mm -hmm. So when people ask me uh, what, what diet you would uh, suggest in terms of purely nutrition science, I would say plant-based. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, if people ask about the like what diet is the most ethical one, I would say vegan diet, because for me, the term plant-based means at least the majority of the calories mm. is derived from, mm. from plants. It doesn't mean like a plant-pure diet, like Dr. Sure. Furman would call it. You kind of answered the next question, which is about like being a professional in this sort of scientific world. Have you had anyone judge you or kind of um, speak down to you for being vegan or saying that you were vegan, mm. which is obviously associated with animal rights. And it's, you could say it's all about ethics, not so much about science. Have you had any challenges with that in, your, in the scientific community? Me personally not, but I, I, I saw that with, with some other colleagues. I think the reason why I did not experience it so far is uh, like because I, from the beginning on, was very clear with my statements. They were never influenced by me being an animal activist. I always made it very clear that in terms of health aspects, we don't have any data to support that, let's say, like a 95% whole food plant-based diet with a very small amount of animal products is uh, really differently in terms of health aspects from like a 100% purely whole food plant-based diet if you focus on certain critical nutrients. So, I mean, we have the Blue Zone diets where, of course, apart from the Loma Linda vegan Adventists, there's no vegan group like the, the Sardinians or the Greece, and they're all really doing good. And we see this with the Adventists, with the different groups that at some diseases, the, the pescatarians do really good, at some the vegans do really good. So we just see if you want to follow a healthy diet, it's got to be at least 
based on whole plant mm. foods. And of course, in terms of addict, I'm a strong believer that a 100% whole food mm. plant-based diet would be good if you focus on critical nutrients. Because the difference between, and, and Dr. Joel Kahn, I think, was made a video about it this week, saying the difference between, ethics aside, the difference between 95% plant-based and 100% plant-based is negligible. Mm. I or, said it as well. Scientifically, okay. potentially mm. negligible. Mm. But the, what we want to try and educate people on what you, you're trying to say, and films like The Game Changes, which we'll talk about later, are saying, yes, the difference might be negligible, but we don't need animal products. So why have them, you know? The, 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 the ethical environmental impact of consuming these foods is so high, why just not just remove them from our diet? But we'll definitely come back to that. So regarding the diet itself, every day, everywhere, TV, radio, movies, magazines, newspapers, people are trying to encourage us to eat animal products. So it's incredibly challenging to kind of stick to the diet. A lot of people fail at it, mainly because of social pressure. But in one, in, as a sort of nutritional scientist, what do you think some of the big reasons why people struggle with it? What are your thoughts? I feel like it's mostly lack of clear information. I mean, if you search the internet for how to, to plan a vegan diet, you will find a lot of different approaches from like 80-10-10, mostly raw high carb guys to, let's say, uh, more balanced approaches to like the normal whole food plant-based diet to to other diets that are more like low carb oriented so you see a lot of different things you see a lot of uh, myths so can i eat soy products can i not eat soy products should i avoid gluten should i not avoid gluten um should i supplement with certain nutrients etc so i feel like there is a lack of clear nutrition information Do you how think that's on purpose though I don't really think because if you see like these different uh, diet books on vegan mm. diets, I think all of the the, the authors really meant, meant their best. Mm. I think it's just science is evolving constantly and it's hard to catch up with it. So I feel like many books are just just too old, but people still following it. Um, and I think that's the reason. Um, and of course, there is, let's say in terms of how much animal products uh, you need, maybe there is a little bit of a industry influence in it. But I really think that this is not, not as strong as people might think. It's just confusion in terms of what is the latest science. Mm, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Now, you were obviously a part of ProVeg for a long time, and ProVeg and many of its partners support uh, reducetarianism or mm. meat reduction as a path to veganville, mm. as Tobias <laughs> Leinhardt likes to call it. Um, do you yourself kind of support that kind of style uh, of consumption as an, as an encouraging way to get people to get off animal products? Yeah, it's again, uh, the, like the private person probably will give a different answer than the nutrition scientist. As a private person, an animal um, rights activist, of course, my, my aim is to not like make bigger cages, but to get rid of the cages mm -hmm. and not to reduce animal suffering, but to end it. But as a nutrition scientist and as an overall rational uh, person, I see that reducitarianism can be an important step towards uh, reducing animal suffering and, and, and then ending it at the, at the, at the final uh, attempt. So yeah, I, I feel like whenever people are on this, let's say, continuum from not caring at all to being 100% whole food plant-based and caring about everything, I'm really lucky if they just move towards the right direction because I think it was uh, Jonathan Safran Fur who once said that it does not make a difference if, let's say, half of the world turns vegan or if this, the whole world eats 50% less animal products. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it's more or less the same, uh, but I think the, the last one is more it's more likely that it will happen. So yeah, definitely. If, if 80 million Germans 
heavily reduce their meat consumption, probably it will have a bigger impact than if uh, some vegans will be like more, like if, if we change from one to 2% vegans, mm -hmm. probably a smaller difference. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think Tobias Leinhardt said in his book, How to Make a Vegan World, it's better that people had, you know, a thousand vegan meals and one non-vegan meal than no vegan meals at all, right? True. We want to encourage people to eat more plants because overall, if you take a big step back, you're going to get a lot less suffering and a lot less environmental damage. We can't force people to stop eating animal products. We can only try and educate them and sort of appeal to their compassion and hope that they make the right choices, don't they? Definitely. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Tobias' work and I think he's totally right with this. And that's also why I really think that inventions like clean meat will, will do a lot, mm. even though they're not perfect in a vegan sense, mm. but they will do a lot of good. Mm, absolutely, we shouldn't let, I'm not sure who said it, but we should never let perfection be the enemy of good, right? True. So onto nutrition itself, there's a lot of, as you said, a lot of confusion and misinformation out there. What are some of the sort of top myths that you always hear about plant-based nutrition that you hear over and over and over? I mean, that was the reason why I wrote a book about vegan cliches, all these myths and cliches that came over and over again. And I think one of the biggest myths and one of the most complicated, if you're not really firm with the science, is the whole soy topic. Mm -hmm. So whether it's soy is feminizing men or is making the risk for breast cancer higher or is harming their thyroid glands. So these are a lot of uh, myths with a, with a little bit, like, there's a small kernel of truth in it, but people just don't interpret it uh, correctly. So this is a big thing. And of course, do you get enough protein without meat, enough calcium without milk, enough iodine and omega-3 fatty acids without fish? Do you get enough uh, B12 or is B12 from a supplement uh, even as good as eating uh, animal products? So these are a lot of uh, myths that I'm uh, facing even a couple of years after I, I started the, the vegan journey as a nutrition scientist. And apart from that, I mean, there are some newer topics that evolved. For example, can we get enough vitamin A? Can we convert a beta-carotene uh, efficiently enough? What about choline, vitamin B4? Um, what about creatine, etc.? So there are like a lot of topics that came up to me. And that's the reason why we're constantly doing uh, nutrition videos uh, each week to mm -hmm. talk about all these mm -hmm. topics. Amazing. Yeah. Let's dive into some of those. So the, the number one that you'll probably hear a lot, we're all here over and over again, is about protein. So first mm. of all, what is protein? Uh, why do we need it? And why do you think people are so obsessed with getting enough protein? I think uh, it was Dr. Garth Davis who wrote the Proteinaholic book and he he said it really nicely when he stated that there's like this health halo effect with protein. So whenever people hear food is high in protein, they automatically feel like, oh, it's gotta be healthy. Um, and I mean, uh, the, the, the word protein derives from the, I think it was a was a Greek word or a Latin word? I think it was a Greek word means like being first in place. So being the most important one. And I feel like this is also the, the approach that nutrition science had long time on protein, that it's like the most important nutrient. But of course, it's just one of many essential nutrients. So there are eight essential amino acids that are uh, important for uh, grown-ups. There are two other uh, that are important for children. So let's say like 10 out of these 20 uh, amino acids that are uh, from importance are really essential for the human body and of course you want to have enough of it um, the official recommendations in germany are 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight uh, due to the higher fiber content of the diet we probably recommend like let's say like 0.9 or 1 gram of protein per kilogram body weight for whole food plant-based eaters but it's totally achievable on a, on a vegan diet 
And of course, it's important. It's important for immune system, for your uh, for your muscle tissue, and a, a lot of things. But people forget about all the other important nutrients when they focus too much on protein. I mean, people count protein on a daily basis, but mm-hmm. they do not count any other essential mm-hmm. nutrient, which is crazy. And of course, it's it's great for meat producing or egg or dairy producing companies that people fancy protein so much because animal products are high in protein and this is not a bad thing in, in theory but this is just not the most important thing and protein itself um, mm. you hear people repeat this over and over and over again as well that plants don't have a complete source of protein mm. that we have to eat animal flesh because it's the closest to ours mm. so that's why we have to eat it to sustain ourselves where, do, where does this myth come from mm. that plants do not contain uh, a full set of proteins? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the topics where we can also say, yeah, there is a, a small kernel of truth in it, mm. but how people interpret it is completely wrong. I have a whole uh, ch- uh, chapter in my book about protein and the protein myth, and I, I feel like the, the, the mainstream got this idea from a, I think it was 1970, something like that, when uh, Francis Lemur uh, published a book called Diet for a Small Planet. Really good book. Uh, many things that were uh, true and are still true to the to the to the day uh, today, but uh, one of the things where she said that you at least gotta combine certain plant proteins in one meal in order to get a complete protein because she thought there are some essential um, amino acids lacking in some, so you gotta combine, for example, grains with legumes in order to get a, a complete amino acid profile. Uh, I think it was already ten years afterwards, like let's say 1980 or 1981, when she published the 10th anniversary edition of. A diet for a small planet when she already corrected herself and said oh it was a mistake you don't need to combine different plant proteins in one meal because your body can combine it through the course of a day so if you for example in the morning eat breakfast cereals with whatever the protein from the grains will com- combine perfectly fine with your tofu in the evening or your um, your beans in when the, you in say the combine mm-hmm. so you got Say you have tofu scramble for mm-hmm. breakfast and then you might have some wheat or some beans mm-hmm. in the evening. Are you saying that they have to be in the gut to be able to combine, to be absorbed efficiently? Not or? really, not really. Your muscle tissue is capable of having an amino acid pool of certain essential amino acids. Okay. So that's the reason why, of course, if you eat something in the morning, mm-hmm. it will not be in your stomach in the yeah. evening. But your muscle can can have a pool of certain amino acids and so so they can combine um, within a course of a day, maybe even more. And it's about the, the eight essential amino acids. Uh, I think you pronounce it lysine. Lysine, lysine right? It's not Leucine, it's lysine. Lysine, yeah. lysine is the most uh, critical amino acid. Uh, you will find it in abundance in, in all the legumes and all the, the beans. But you maybe get a little bit less if you don't eat them. So that's why we recommend people to eat it on a regular basis. The, the kernel of truth is that yes, if you compare animal tissue with beans or with grains, the biological values will be higher in the meat. But this is only important in a theoretical scenario where you eat only one type of food over a very long period of time. Mm. Then it's very important that that it has a very good profile in terms Mm. of essential amino acids. If you eat your nuts and your legumes and your grains and your seeds uh, on a regular basis, these different amino acid profiles will combine perfectly fine. So these people who are eating these mono meals and just mm-hmm. fasting on water and fruit for a very long extended periods of time are quite literally starving their muscles of uh, aminos. Not only their muscles. I mean, when, when people say they fail on a vegan diet, I'm really open to 
every interesting idea why people could fail on a vegan diet and I think it's important to pay attention to all of these ex-vegans mm. um, and some of the things that they were saying were at least quite interesting but I really see patterns why people fail. Many people were doing prolonged times of fasting, eating completely raw diets, eating very restrictive and of course some of them maybe then afterwards eat a whole food plant-based diet and supplement it but the, the problem that was before still existed or they had problems with their, with their with their gut flora etc so we know that some people can fail on a vegan diet but it's not a vegan diet per se mm. it's the underlying cause that is not paid attention enough and you also mentioned vitamin a as well we hear the carnivores continuously bringing out vitamin a because red meat or raw meat has high levels of vitamin a in it doesn't it retin retinol red is retinol, retinol yeah um i'm yeah, the numbers are, I mean, different tissues have different uh, contents of vitamin like organ, A. Organ, organ meats are very high in, in this aspect, yeah. Mm. And, of course, I mean, when whenever you... you why do we need mm -hmm. it first, though? What's the vitamin yeah. A and what's the point of Yeah, the, 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 the name already tells it. It's important for your, I think you call, do you call it retina in, in German? Like mm -hmm. the, the eye. Yeah, it's important for your eyesight uh, and other things as well. It's an, basically, it's an essential nutrient. I think it's always important when people ask, why is this nutrient important? Of course, we can name one or two things. But as I think it was Dr. Campbell who said, nutrients work as symphonies. Mm -hmm. So we need different nutrients for a lot of different reasons. That's why you cannot always uh, say, oh, you have this symptom, it's gotta be that nutrient deficiency. Mm -hmm. So it's always important mm -hmm. to just get a full nutrient profile. And vitamin A is an essential nutrient. Um, people normally can convert pro-vitamin A, beta-carotene, um, to vitamin A, so when they eat enough kale, which is not orange, but it has a lot of uh, pro-vitamin A. When you eat carrots, when you eat sweet potatoes, when you eat pumpkins, you will get uh, normally about like three to 500% of the RDA for, oh, okay. for vitamin A. Cooked or, cooked or raw? Uh, if you cook it, you, uh, you, you first of all, you wanna uh, eat it with, uh, with some sort of fats because the fat soluble vitamin mm -hmm. and you wanna have uh, enough fat for it. And um, I'm not entirely sure if this also uh, is true for pro-vitamin A, but many of these uh, compounds are better absorbable when you cook it. So I think this also holds true for vitamin A, but maybe you don't want to uh, call me on that one. Um, but it's important to, to eat it with fat. And so even if you are not perfectly fine converting better carotene to vitamin A. If you eat your free four, five hundred percent of your RDA, you will be fine. There might be some people who are at higher risk because they have a genetic uh, predisposition where they can really hardly convert it. In case this holds true for some people, just supplement it. Mm. I mean, it's, it's possible to have a vegan supplement of mm. vitamin A. Not a problem at all. So that's why when, when people ask for a multivitamin for vegans, I would always suggest that there is at least a little bit of vitamin A in it mm -hmm. because it, it it would not hurt people who are converting it mm. perfectly fine, but it will help some people who maybe are not converting it. While we're talking about sort of nutrients as a side point, some of the anti-vegan or anti-plant-based advocates talk about anti-nutrients like mm. phytates, mm. substances that plants have evolved to kind of protect things like nuts, for example, mm. and nuts shell skin is, is coated or filled with phytates, doesn't it? Mm. That stop mm. the, the, the seed being digested or at least reduce the, the mm. digestion. Should we as vegans be concerned about these, quote, 
and I'm quite <laughs> anti-nutrients. Yeah, I mean, I also read books like uh, Plant Paradox from Dr. Gandhi, and I also, I, I basically, I wrote all the, uh, read, not wrote, I read all mm -hmm. the books uh, from these from this anti-vegan advocates, mm -hmm. and it's, again, it's a kernel of truth that is just uh, interpreted wrongly. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, when you cook certain foods, you reduce the content of many anti-nutrients like lectins and amylase inhibitors and prote uh, protease inhibitors. It's not necessarily true for phytates, so you only reduce them by, let's say, 10 or 20%, so there's still uh, quite a lot in it, but uh, most of these anti-nutrients, they are not only bad. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's true that they will bind a certain percentage of minerals and they maybe lower the absorption of iron and zinc and magnesium and calcium, mm -hmm. but not 100%, but also like a certain percentage. But on the other hand, um, phytates and many other anti-nutrients also act as antioxidants, mm -hmm. anti-carcinogens, and so this is like, they are all phytochemicals. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of good properties as well. Oh. And scientists, when you, when you like read through the whole uh, scientific literature you will find that even more scientists claim that in a western style diet phytates have more benefits than disadvantages if we think of let's say third world country diets that are normally lacking in a lot of nutrients this could be a problem but especially for especially especially for omnivores uh, phytates are a really good thing because mm -hmm. they will bind some of the um, heme iron mm -hmm. so more benefits for them but even for vegans if they're eating healthy they do not need to worry about it you just mm -hmm. make sure that you eat your mineral absorption enhancers mm -hmm. with your meals so you have your vitamin c for iron you have beta carotene for iron you have uh, sulfur compounds for iron you have um, organic acids for iron you have vitamin d for calcium you have protein for calcium you have Pre some prebiotics for calcium. So you have different uh, absorbing, enhancing substances that you should eat with your meals and then you're perfectly fine. Amazing. So one of the other and one of the biggest questions that are always asked and concerns are obviously soybeans. Yeah. Soy. Everyone's always asking about it. Is it safe? Is it, men are asking, is it going to give us man boobs? Women are worried about causing breast cancer. People are constantly sharing memes on social media suggesting that soybeans contain estrogen mm. <laughs> yeah. when we know that cow's milk contains estrogen because it comes from a female animal so that's a kind of ridiculous but let's talk about soybeans uh, are they great are they bad should we avoid them yeah important question please stop me if I'm going too far because this is one of my specialities because I also wrote my bachelor thesis about this topic first of all uh, are there any conflicts of interest involved no I'm not funded by any soy company <laughs> I it just I just happen to have a great interest in soy because people constantly ask me about it and when I was like in my first semester I was like yeah probably we hear about this later and then in the fifth semester I still said we haven't heard anything about it probably later and when I was done with the studies like in the seventh semester I thought like oh wow so I have a bachelor in nutrition science and I did not learn about it interesting so whenever you hear people talk about topics for example soy and they're nutrition scientists or medical doctors you can be pretty sure that they did not learn anything about it in school or in university. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's important to just uh, read the, the science. And I was open to the outcome. If the outcome would be you should avoid soybeans, great. We have a lot of legumes and other um, lentils that you can eat. But if the outcome would be it's 
not hazardous, but maybe even beneficial. It would be ridiculous if we are afraid of beans. <laughs> so, and the, the second one is, is way closer to the truth. So when people ask me, how can I find out, let's say the truth, uh, of course, the best way is to uh, dig into the science yourself, go to PubMed and read through all the studies. This could take a little while. So many people probably cannot do it. Second thing you could do, you should not trust a single person neither me or anyone else, but you can go to the to the positioning papers of major authorities. If you are afraid that soy could uh, raise the risk for breast cancer, why not go to the, all the major cancer societies like the American Institute for Cancer Research, the World Cancer Research Fund, the Cancer Council of Australia and many others, they will all have positioning papers about soy and breast cancer. If you are afraid that it could lower testosterone or could lower the chance that you could reproduce, mm -hmm. there are uh, authorities like the Center of the Evaluations of the Risks for Human Reproduction or the BFR Bundesinstitut für Risikobewertung in Germany mm -hmm. and they all have positioning papers about, about soy. If you're just generally afraid that it's unhealthy you will have all the nutrition authorities in America, in Canada, in Germany uh, with their positioning papers and they will also cite the science so you can check it yourself and there is a great consensus here. Um, in the normal amounts that people will eat so everything between one to three to five servings a day which equals uh, one serving is either 100 grams of tofu or 200 uh, milliliter of soy milk so more than the normal amounts people would eat uh, you will not have feminizing effects you will not have a higher risk for breast cancer uh, you will have uh, actually a lower risk I mean the, the American Institute for Cancer Research is telling people or is suggesting people to do three things to lower the risk for, for breast cancer first eat a lot of fiber so eat a lot of plant foods um, lower the amount of saturated fatty acids and third eat soy products on a daily basis on a regular basis uh, we also have studies like the Shanghai breast cancer survival study where you see that uh, women have a better health outcome with eating more soy products uh, of course there are um, individual case studies with people only eating soy products let's say like the equivalent of 20 servings mm -hmm. like a, kilos and kilos of soy products at some point yes you will have uh, estrogenic effects and it could be a problem as soon as you stop it, it will it will go away. But this is not how people should consume soy. You should mm -hmm. consume soy in a moderate way, and then you will have the, the benefits. We should stop thinking in foods as either good or bad. What we should do is we should think about foods being good in a certain amount and not being good in a larger amount. I mean, mm -hmm. you could have health problems with eating too much spinach, with mm -hmm. drinking too much water. You can have health problems yeah, with a lot of things. Yeah, water could kill you. It could, if yeah. you drink too much water. It is. It can be toxic. I mean, very unlikely, but it happened. Mm -hmm. um, so eating regular amount of soy is a good thing if you're not uh, allergic to soy that's really the only thing that you should worry about but the allergic threshold is relatively high which means you will not have problems with minuscule amounts like mm. some people have with pea protein allergies mm. they could die of it uh, but it's very unlikely with soy products and you see I mean many of the soy critics you see how little they know about the science because they say things like you see this on some websites okay if you eat soy products avoid all the unfermented soy products but stick to the fermented but if you really follow their idea of what is harmful, you will find out that they are they have uh, fears over their phytoestrogens, the isoflavones. But if you ferment soy products, those very compounds get way stronger. Mm. So if you really understand how they work, you would not, if you are afraid of tofu, you should be even more afraid of tempeh. <laughs> um, but of course, we don't have to be afraid of, of either or. And so basically, to, to sum this up in a nutshell, um, yes, it can uh, hurt your thyroid gland if you are iodine deficient. I mean, it's a goitrogenic compound. 
cruciferous vegetables, soy products and many other products can be goitrogenic, but not if you're eating enough Which iodine. Which means what, they reduce? They, they can uh, reduce the amount of iodine that is uh, taken up by the thyroid gland. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we saw this a couple of decades ago when soy infant formula was not fortified with iodine. Mm -hmm. Some uh, small children had problems since it is fortified with iodine, not a problem at all. Mm -hmm. And Again, I mean, you don't you want to eat cruciferous vegetables because of their health benefits. Mm. But of course, if you eat them mostly raw and you're iodine deficient, mm. can be a problem. So people should worry less and be more educated. <laughs> well, on that point, though, with so many different nutrients, I mean, in mm. front of me, a long list of nutrients I wanted to discuss with you, but people do feel overwhelmed. Mm. People want to be able to go into the kitchen, throw some food onto a plate and just eat it and not have to worry. And you can understand why a lot of people feel overwhelmed by a plant-based diet and concerned that they're not getting enough. And, you know, feed into the mainstream narrative in the media, which says, you know, parents are killing their children by giving them vegan diets, that you're gonna die, you're gonna get anemia, all these different potential illnesses. Mm. How do people, other than buying your book, <laughs> are there, are there, what's the best way for someone to sort of feel confident that they're getting everything they need? Yeah, I mean, first of all, people don't even have to buy my book. We have all the, the main information also on YouTube, <laughs> but they are, of course, free to do so. Um, and I understand being pe uh, like people being overwhelmed, um, but let's let's put it that way. In terms of an omnivore diet, why, why will people get most of the nutrients on an omnivore diet? because the state is taking care of it because at least I can only speak about, about Germany or let's say some parts of Europe where for example like cows and, and uh, pigs and, and chickens will get additional selenium in their feet in order to have enough selenium in their meat and their eggs. Uh, you will find uh, iodine supplements in the feed so that the milk has enough iodine in it. You will see at least for pigs and chickens in the uh, factory farms they will supplement with B12. So you have some supplementation through the through the animal and this is why people in Germany have enough selenium if they eat meat but they have too little selenium if they only eat plants because our soil is just selenium deficient we could follow the path of Finland for example Finland is putting selenium in the soil so the, the plants absorb it mm. but this is not done in most of the other countries so I think it's not a problem of the vegan diet per se it's a problem of how we actually produce food nowadays and we have too little emphasis on producing high quality plant foods that is nutritionally adequate that's mm. basically the, the, the thing and I feel like there's, uh, there is two potential answers to this question because I, I of course don't want people to overthink their diet I want people to have fun in the kitchen and just enjoy good food but on the same time make sure that they are like adequately set with all the nutrients and uh, the one way which is hopefully the future is that first the soil quality is better so we uh, put some nutrients in the soil some minerals second we are in the future hopefully better with giving additional nutrients to the food for example like fortifying food in many countries it's totally normal that you will have vitamin D or vitamin B12 in plant milks we should do the same here so that people just eat ordinary foods and they get them their, their nutrients until uh, this point uh, I'm a great, great favor of people taking a well-designed multi-nutrient. Why? Because you can just have, I think the perfect way would be like two different ones, so in the morning and in the evening, one product because some of the nutrients are uh, not well absorbed if you put in all in one sitting. Um, but people have a, multi a multi-nutrient with their minimum amount of selenium, iodine, etc., B12, etc., and then they can 
eat basically i mean of course still healthy still whole mm. foods but they can eat more or less how they really like and they have the critical nutrients covered with a well-designed multinutrient i think this is an easy way for people to stop worrying about things mm. some people are afraid of multivitamins or pills because mm. they feel it's not natural yeah what do you say to those people yeah i'm afraid of people who are afraid of unnatural things <laughs> <laughs> i mean the thing is i can understand of course but it's a natural fallacy um just because something is natural or unnatural doesn't make it either good or bad. I mean, right. we have many unnatural things that are great. We're sitting here in front of a laptop in a house with an air condition. <laughs> so this is unnatural but great and we have a lot of natural things that are not so great. I mean, uh, diseases, um, stuff like that. Uh, the plague, very natural but very bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is one thing and of course I, I see the point of people saying this is unnatural. But the question is, does it work? Mm. Uh, is it healthy or unhealthy? Is it good or bad? Does it work or not? And if you produce a either a multivitamin or a normal supplement in a good way, so no contaminants, if you choose the right form, the right dosage and the right combination of different nutrients, the body couldn't care less if your B12 comes from propionibacteria that lives in a stomach of a cow or if the B12 comes from bacteria that were kept in a certain a certain condition in a laboratory or, or like a, a factory mm-hmm. where they produce B12. Mm-hmm. I mean, there has been studies in the, in the past um, claiming that uh, overdosage of nutrients can be bad. For example, or we also have the select study with the high dosage of vitamin E that mm. uh, were bad. So of course you, you don't want to throw the pills mm. in like it's, I don't know, gummy bears. Um, it, it's, it's a potent uh, uh, thing. You want to do it with moderation. You want to do it with, uh, with enough knowledge. Um, but then it can be very beneficial. And I think one of the biggest problems, not, even in, not only inside the vegan community, is this um, fear of isolated nutrients. Mm. I mean, your body could not care less if your iodine is coming from the salt you're taking or from the fish or from the algae or from somewhere else. But especially the, the algaes maybe have, or like the, the brazen nuts in terms of selenium, have large varieties. So if you eat a brazen nut, you're not really sure how many, how much selenium you get. Or if you eat your uh, kombu algae, you're not really, you don't really know how much iodine you're taking mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. So it's, at some point, it can even be beneficial to have just a supplement with 150 micrograms. Which you know. Yeah. Didn't uh, T- T- Dr. T. Colin Campbell speak a lot about um, isolating nutrients he and did, the potential yeah. risks yeah. of that? Like, what are your thoughts on his yeah. kind of opinions? Yeah, I mean, or his a, studies or his research. I'm a, I'm a great fan of the work from all these pioneers. So, um, who am I to to judge uh, his his statements? Purely as a scientist, mm, I mean, yeah. not necessarily like sure. opinion. But, but I, I feel like there is more to the to the picture. I mm. think this, the, especially in terms of this this very topic, the the picture was not presented in a in a complete way. Because we know, I mean, yes, there has been studies where supplements can be detrimental for health. I mean, for example, there are a couple of different tocopherols, like forms of vitamin A. And if you just uh, pull out one form of vitamin A, for example, alpha tocopherol, and you you give it to people in a high dosage, yeah, you maybe block the absorption of other forms. Or if you supplement people with very high dosage of of one mineral, at the same time, you could block the absorption of other minerals. So you just want to be sure that you know what you're doing Mm -hmm. and maybe people did not knew this or know this uh like in the in the in the past but i see it's important i mean i don't want people to rely on pills Mm -hmm. and powders definitely Mm -hmm. not i want people to rely on whole plant food 
But if we combine the advantages of these, I mean, this is also my, my master's studies. I'm studying uh, micronutrient therapy and regulatory medicine. And I feel like if we have this so-called orthomolecular medicine or regulatory medicine or how you want to, ever you want to call it, like micronutrient-based therapy mm -hmm. and combine it with the advantages of whole food plant-based diet, I think you can have the best possible outcomes because both parties have important information to give and both can join together to make the best possible health outcomes mm -hmm. for people. And then there's also um, absorption as well mm -hmm. with multivitamins mm -hmm. or any kind of vitamin or powder. Yeah, which is better than from the foods right. most of the time. Okay, because there's, <laughs> there's a lot of people that say that you, you spend a lot of money on these mm -hmm. pills and supplements, but a lot of it ends up being excreted mm -hmm. into the toilet. Yeah, um, it, it, how do we know when we're paying for these things, whether we're absorbing them or not? Yeah, so there are two important things. First of all, normally, like in general, you absorb the nutrients from supplements way better because there are no anti-nutrients, mm -hmm. no fiber, etc. that could hinder the absorption. So, for example, folic acid is way better absorbed from a pill than from food or the bioavailability from protein from protein powder is higher than from whole grains, mm -hmm. uh, which is not necessarily always good it's not always bad as well it's just a fact it's better absorbable um, and of course if you for example take in hundreds and hundreds of micrograms of vitamin b12 much will go down the toilet which is not necessarily a bad thing either because your body just not, not absorbs everything but it doesn't mean that it's not working your body absorbs uh, quite a bit and the rest is going down the toilet so again you want to find a supplement that is uh, in the right proportion so I'm not a huge fan of giving people like once a week 2,000 micrograms of vitamin B12, but maybe split the dosage on of uh, two occasions a day and um, make the dosage way lower, and then you will not excrete uh, so much or you won't waste too much. Mm -hmm. But it's not toxic, so it's uh, nothing to worry about in terms of water-soluble micronutrients. Of course, there are some that could hurt, so you don't want to overdose with vitamin D, so with the fat-soluble compounds. You don't want to supplement without uh, thinking about it uh, with in terms of uh, phytochemicals. And as Dr. Colin Campbell says, of course, you want to go with food first. Mm. But I feel like, like the best thing is you cover everything with food which is not possible always for all people. The second best thing is you cover most of the things with food, supplement the critical nutrients, and then you're fine as well. The worst thing is you cover the majority, not cover some, mm. and then you just leave it with that. That's how people turn ex-vegans. One additional note that is uh, really important to me to, to get the whole picture. Uh, for example, if people, I mean, many people also in Europe get their information from nutrition authorities or medical doctors from the United States because this is where a lot of great doctors are. And you will not, for example, hear them talk a lot about selenium, for example, because the soil in Canada and in America is quite high in selenium. For example, 100 grams of whole grains have approximately 100 micrograms of selenium, which is more than the RDA of selenium. So if you are on a vegan diet in Canada or America, you don't really have to care about selenium at all. If you are in Germany, Austria, Switzerland and many other countries, you will have to worry because 100 grams of whole grains, for example, only contain about uh, 5 micrograms, so like 20 oh. times less. Um, so whenever people get nutrition information or if they go on chronometer and type in their food, they should uh, think about where is their food or their nutrition advice coming from and is this necessarily true for my particular situation in, for example, Germany as well. Mm -hmm. So. 
I mean, I would love if uh, it would be true that you can simply say, oh, eat a whole food plant-based diet, uh, leave out meat products and you will be perfectly fine. Would be great. Um, but I'm really, really, really focused on the health of people, the long-term health of people, and I don't want people to turn ex-vegans. So that's why I am very precise with the recommendation in terms of micronutrients, not because I'm selling anything. People can take it or cannot take it. They can take brand A, they can take brand two, uh, brand B, uh, if both brands are well formulated. But I'm really, really, really worried that people get long-term nutrient deficiencies in certain circumstances. What happens if we don't have selenium in our diet? What happens to our body? One important thing is your thyroid gland is heavily dependent on iodine and selenium mm -hmm. and like a dozen other uh, nutrients as well. But this can be a problem. And many people have problems with their thyroid, uh, thyroid glands. They only supplement iodine and they will not get the full benefits of the iodine without having the selenium as well, for example. Or uh, we see that selenium is an antioxidant. Uh, it's a mineral, but it can act as an antioxidant. So a good intake of selenium on a regular basis uh, showed to lower the risk of certain cancers in certain studies. Of course, on the other hand, you don't want to overdo it because uh, too much selenium is uh, associated with a lower insulin sensitivity, which means a higher risk of metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes yeah. so it's always the same thing you don't want to randomly overdo it with especially with those micronutrients like iodine and selenium and iron and stuff like that but you want to have the appropriate amount right let's move on to mm -hmm. talk about a film called uh -huh. the game changers have yes. you seen it yes i have two uh, times already yes. what did you think what did you make of the film yeah so i saw the first version of the film i think it was way more than one year ago when they presented the film at the berlinale festival in in berlin and then i saw the latest version actually in the cinema <laughs> and i think overall it's a great movie it's you see how much effort and time and capacities they spent uh, with the film and of course i i saw the, the criticism about about the documentary and i think people don't understand one important thing. If you make a documentary, this is a movie, right? So people wanna be entertained. You wanna get across a message in, I don't know, 45, 60 or 90 minutes. And if you wanna have like a, a complete picture of the whole thing, this uh, documentary is not the first choice. You want to read a book that's where, where you have enough space. So I think uh, the documentary did a great job. Of course, uh, at some points, maybe they presented the picture a little bit uh, not three-dimensional enough um, but it's definitely one of the best documentaries in in that field and i think it's very motivating for a lot of people and they they did a great job um the greatest job that they did uh, uh, was the debunking of the debunking of the of the uh, game changers documentary there's this uh, one podcast uh, the joe rogan podcast with uh, i think they invited chris cresser as an anti-vegan uh, and uh, the, the maker of the movie uh, james wilkins right Wilkes, yeah. Wilkes, sorry james, yeah. james wilkins sorry for that <laughs> um who defended in it was like two and a half or three hours and he defended it uh, so nicely and so if you really think that they did a, a bad job listen to this two and a half or three hours of james wilkes defending all the points chris Cresser made this was one of the best um, uh, podcast series that i've ever seen he was so well prepared and some context for the conversation to anyone who hasn't listened who doesn't know who chris Cresser is he's actually not a doctor or a nutritionist or a dietitian he just has to be happens to be someone who has a large following he's an acupuncturist um, and has an interest in nutrition and claims to be able to, in quotes, read the scientific literature. Yet he has been placed on the same discussion point as people who 
are credible and have spent and dedicated their entire lives to nutrition and health. That's a problem. I mean, people most of the time see, as you say, the social media followership. Mm -hmm. Then they maybe have a doctor title, but people don't know if it's like a medical doctor, doctor in nutrition or doctor in whatever. You can mm -hmm. become a doctor in many things. <laughs> and that's a, that's a huge problem. And I think after listening to discussion, uh, you will see that he is not as credible as people maybe thought beforehand. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> Should be very careful of the men in white coats, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's, it's, it's great when people discuss about nutrition and if he has a great interest in, in nutrition, awesome. Mm. But it's always important to get like to get the, the whole picture, to get absolutely. the full picture. There was a lot of discussion in the podcast about industry-funded studies. Mm. And James came to the point uh, many times that essentially that we shouldn't really trust industry-funded studies because mm. they have an ulterior motive. Mm. They want a desired outcome. And I think he gave some statistic that 80% of industry-funded studies often end in favor of that said industry. Mm. Should we always be cautious of industry-funded studies or...? Yeah, I mean, we, we should be cautious uh, every time when we read through nutrition science because like a conflict of interest is quite easily. I mean, you can either be a company who gives money to, to fund a study, yes, then you have a conflict of interest. But at the same time, you can be a person who dedicated uh, his or her life to studying a certain thing and then you also have a conflict of interest because if at the end something completely differently turns out, then your whole career <laughs> is built upon a fallacy. So I think there is a lot of, uh, of um, conflict of interest going on, but this doesn't necessarily make a study good or bad. That's why I love science so much because you see the methods, you see how the study was conducted and if you, of course, if you're able to read it, you can you can read through it, you see the statistics, you can see the statistical errors, you can, and there's a lot of authorities that also talk about different studies, for example, when the, when the pure study came out. This was even peer-reviewed, but there were a lot of, uh, of fallacies in it. But immediately after the study came out, you saw the Harvard Health Block discuss the fallacies. You see a lot of people discussing it. So it's, it's quite transparent. So I would not say that you should dismiss automatically every study that is funded by a certain industry. There was also the, the, the thing with the whole nut uh, study and the nut benefits mm -hmm. from, from some YouTube channels. And also some valid points there, but just because a study, study is funded by a certain industry doesn't make it uh, bad automatically. And just because a study is not funded directly by industry doesn't make it good already mm. or automatically. So we just have to take care and read thoroughly uh, through the study and just don't only read the abstract, but mm. a lot of people do. Mm. And you gotta understand the statistical method. Mm. That's why people, I mean, people spend three to four years doing their bachelor in nutrition, then another two to three years for their uh, master and then another five years for their PhD. So people spend a lot of in, in the nutrition science field and when people suddenly came like with having experience in nutrition in a couple of years only, of course, they cannot uh, have the full knowledge about the whole science behind yeah, it. Yeah, I think it's incredibly arrogant, these men and women who come along and decide that they are experts because they have a large social media following. And you see it all the time with these health advocates on Instagram who are talking. It happened a lot with the clean eating revolution when people talked about mm. eating clean. Um, and it you know, potentially spawned a whole host of health problems for mm -hmm. particularly also for, for a lot of young women as well who may have been more prone to eating disorders where they they became afraid and of eating foods that were in quotes dirty or unhealthy um, and became an obsession with eating clean foods and, and bringing light to conditions which are now called orthorexia where people have a an almost obsessive uh, tendency to only eat foods that are of the absolute purity 
um, leaving out a lot of other food groups. Yeah, and potentially also a lot of nutrients. A lot I mean, of potential nutrients too. Yeah, we we should really stop thinking about foods in terms of single foods. There's not good or bad foods. There's good or bad dietary patterns. Mm. And you could basically, if you leave out ethics and leave out environmental issues, you could basically eat anything. The question is how much do you eat of it and what do you eat besides? I mean, for example, if you eat, let's say you like cakes, right? With white flour, sugar and margarine in it. So not a healthy food, definitely. But if you eat it, for example, in the morning after having uh, not eating for like 10 hours, you are more insulin sensitive. So you can um, you can digest it in a better way. If you, for example, ate uh, legumes the night before, the second meal effect of the legumes the night before will um, level out, at least for the majority of the, of the party, will level out the uh, insulin, like the glycemic uh, index or the, the glucose spike. Mm. If you then throw in some berries as well, the antioxidants from the berries will um, will at least cope some of the oxidative stress from the high uh, sugar content. So it's not about single foods, it's about dishes, it's about diets, it's about dietary patterns and people should stop worrying about mm. one one particular food. It's a symphony as you said earlier. Yeah, <laughs> like uh, Dr. Campbell said, it's, it's so true, mm. definitely. Um, yeah, and it's, it's not important. a symphony when one instrument's playing on its own. <laughs> Definitely, it's definitely. But at the same time, which doesn't mean that you cannot take a uh, isolated nutrient, even mm. if it's just one instrument. Mm. <laughs> True. It can be a solo from some to time, some time, times. Yeah. So some of the leading killers of humans today mm -hmm. are heart disease, type two diabetes, and can and are reversed mm -hmm. in many cases with a whole food plant based diet. If we know this, mm -hmm. and this is science fact, right? Why are not more doctors and nutritionists recommending this as a first point? when re re stopping reversing heart disease or reversing type 2 diabetes, so which is huge, it's, a, it's an epidemic. It is, it is. I mean, you see this when you take a look at the statistics from the WHO, mm -hmm. leading killer worldwide heart disease followed by strokes. And this is not only in 2019, it's in 2016 and 2006. And so like this is for a long period of time. And we had a lot of medical breakthroughs. I mean, we invented stents and bypasses and statins and they all helped, but they didn't really focus on the primary cause of it. And I mean, I'm not an expert in, in heart health, so it's always important uh, to to like focus on the on on your main on your main uh, topic that you are an expert in. And I'm not an expert in this field, but of course I read the studies. And yeah, heart health is uh, is really really uh, hugely influenced by your lifestyle in general, and very important also by your dietary choices. I'm way more educated in the terms of diabetes research because uh, this is also what my uh, master thesis is about and this is also uh, the study that, we'll, that we will conduct for my uh, PhD in nutrition science. So I'm well more aware of the data on, on diabetes and this is really, really easily reversible. Mm -hmm. It's type 2 diabetes of course, it's not type 1 diabetes which is an autoimmune disease and there are some people who have type 2 diabetes for a long period of time. They can like maybe not completely reverse it, but definitely uh, can can cure it for for a large uh, portion. Um, but a lot of people can can reverse it. And why are doctor not aware? Doctors not aware of it. First of all, they don't learn about it in school. I mean, you have a whole series uh, on this uh, very topic. We have a series on this as well on our YouTube channel. Doctors just don't have nutrition science in in, in like medical school, and I think they are not even to blame for this. Why? I mean, how much? should they learn additionally, right? Mm -hmm. They are doctors, they gotta know so many things. That's why we have nutrition scientists, that's why we have uh, dietitians. that is their aim. I think the problem is not that doctors don't know about it, the problem is that dietitians or nutrition scientists are not 
like taken into the picture of healthcare. So whenever you are overweight or have diabetes or uh, heart disease, you of course should go to the doctor and the doctor should say, okay, this is what I can do for you. And then I transfer you to a dietitian and this is what the dietitian can do for you. Um, so I think this is the, the real problem. Um, because the, the data is here, the data is there. I mean, yes. we, we saw Dr. Ornish, uh, the diet, lifestyle, heart trial, reversing uh, heart disease uh, like so many years ago. We saw the work of Dr. Esselstyn. Mm -hmm. We saw uh, the diabetes research from so many people. So yes, definitely. And we hopefully can um, reproduce these outcomes in our own study as well when we, when we do it. So the doctors are not to blame in my opinion, but the, the system is to blame. There's some interesting um studies coming out from uh, Slovakia, if you're aware of mm. the NFI protocol, the, uh -huh. the natural food interaction protocol. Mm, have, I haven't heard about that yet. Yeah, 97.5% success at reversing type 2 diabetes. Is this like really new data? Yeah, so nah, we've been working with it. them and supporting Ooh. them. Um, they are a small team have been running out of Slovakia and have had wow. huge success, 97.5%, and they're going to publish in the Lancet and a bunch of nice. other uh, medical publications and we're going to be excited to sort of tell the world about them but um, it's really exciting to see that and I think a lot of people who are on this lifestyle who, who, who are eating in this way in Slovakia are starting to realize that you know their culture and the way that they're eating has been making them sick and we're just seeing huge amounts of uh, change happening out of that country and now uh, the person that we work with David over there saying there's this whole industry springing up over there restaurants and cafes who are all going completely plant-based nice. all the supermarkets are selling out of soy milk and tofu and and um, Weetabix because <laughs> it's been, become such a popular diet but it's that's so cool it's such gr so great to see and I think the things are, things are changing because we you know we have now the data and I think the, the, the message is getting through Right, so let's move on That's to so cool. other things that you yes. don't do. So when you're not a nutritional yeah. scientist, uh -huh. what are you doing with your life? <laughs> you do some fun stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm really like a, a Gregor type of guy. I'm really working a lot. Not as much as, I think no one is working as much as Dr. Gregor or as efficiently as uh, he is. But I think I'm one of the persons who is closest uh, to his work ethics. So I'm, I'm really working a lot. But I, I, feel like I feel bad if I'm not working because there are so many things to do. And mm. it's just my high excitement as well um, but on the other hand um, not all my nutrition related work is purely nutrition science I mean of course I do publish books I teach at universities I give seminars I give talks I've been at the German army giving talks uh, at the, like I speak in front of the German politicians uh, and stuff like that so I, I do a lot of really nutrition science related content um, but I also do uh, things and I of course do my, my YouTube channel, but I also do things like uh, managing a vegan band. So um, because I feel like nutrition science is very important because it's on a rational level, it uh, comes to people and it gets through to people because they just realize what you have to do and what health potential is mm. in a vegan diet. But especially a vegan diet, not a plant-based diet, is in my opinion an ethical motivated diet and you don't really touch the heart of people when you speak uh, one hour about B12. Right? Mm -hmm. sure. um, but I feel like art uh, can do this in a very unique way. That's why I really uh, am a big fan of the vegan artists uh, around the world, the vegan musicians around the world. And I saw a lot of uh, great talented uh, vegan musicians in Germany, but I felt like they 
they did not reach as many people as they could and should do. That's why I brought some of them together to work on the so-called vegan EP uh, with my help. And we are now we already released uh, four out of five songs from the first EP. We're going on a, a large tour next right. year. What's uh, one of the top songs we'll play it to the audience? Yeah, so your audience is mainly English speaking. Yeah. So I think the English songs are from a greater interest. We have a, a great remix with a, a UK singer called uh, Queen V. Mm -hmm. The song is called What Hell Is Like. We did a remix with our musician Flex or uh, in a couple of weeks there will be an, a new song called I See You with a, a musical called a musician called uh, Andy Jones and Flo Hill our other song. Uh, so if you just go on the on the uh, my YouTube channel you see the, the covers and the songs. Okay. Most of them are in German but some are in English as well. And I feel like this is a this really excites me because I really feel like this touches people on a on a different level. Mm. So this is what I'm doing. I'm doing a lot of sports. Um, With the music though, it's mm -hmm. quite challenging to make vegan music, isn't it? Without it sounding corny, cheesy, crazy, yeah, mm. or kind of even religious. Like I think it's hard, and that's why I I really um, have so much respect for those musicians. But I musicians because I feel like they are doing an insanely good job. Especially the music that we produced uh, within the last uh, couple of weeks is like again two levels above the things that we released so far, and I feel they really like made this like on the one hand it has enough impact yeah. and message, but on the other mm. hand it's just good music mm. and it's, it just sounds good and they they pick the right words great. to talk about it. So I, I think this is a really great potential. We're working together with some artists to make collaborations in terms of um, music covers and exhibitions and stuff like that. So this is really cool. So whenever there's a, a artist, either a painter or a musician or whatever out there who wants to join, uh, just send us an email. Great. And then we'll see what we can do. We'll leave the, your contact details in the description. Please. Before we let you go, we asked yes. the audience for some questions. Uh, so these are quick fire, so to keep your answers nice and short, um, I'll pick a few. Uh, what is the most important thing that I should be concerned about when I'm pregnant and vegan? Yes. Um, From Martin, so Martin Cool Manova. All right. So everyone should be uh, concerned with folic acids, um, but especially, of course, the, the omnivore women, but also the, the vegans. And it's B12, it's DHA for the brain development. It's always, I mean, when you're pregnant, be do the same thing as you're not pregnant, but pay extra, extra, extra um, attention to some of the critical nutrients. <laughs> Axel said, why is no one talking about selenium and iodine, but all about protein? And he also said, is choline something vegans should be worrying about? Yeah, so I feel like the selenium thing is because in the United States, etc., selenium is just not a big deal, um, and the salt is iodized, so that's the reason why, I think. Um, and choline, I mean, it, in, at least in, in Germany, it's not classified as an essential nutrient, surely. Mm -hmm. So um, your body should be able to to produce uh, enough of it on their own. But uh, we are uh, doing a video on that. So I'm the, like my research, my own research is yet to come. So I got to uh, look into this topic and maybe we'll find out that uh, some people will need additional uh, Sholin and yeah, we'll see in a, in, a, in a sec, hopefully. So you have a book uh, which is sold over 50,000 copies. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and it's titled? Uh, in German language, it's called Vegan Klischee AD, which is kind of hard to translate. Uh, but you, you probably, like most accurate, you say like debunking vegan myths, something like that. Mm -hmm. And tell us about the book. How did where, what was the where was it, the idea from? Yeah, so the idea was just. I mean, I I'm giving talks since the beginning of 2015, and since that, more or less the same questions come over and over again. And as 
I, I really I'm not like I don't have a problem to repeat myself but I felt like if I would do videos and write books to these very questions uh, I could serve more people because I just can spread the information more widely and I wanted to make sure that it's really really f like um, grounded in science so the book altogether has 450 pages it has more than 1000 um, uh, scientific sources um, that's why it uh, took me quite a, a long time to write it and read through all the sources. It's really just like the nutritional science mm -hmm. is on, on some parts critical with a vegan diet mm -hmm. where it's uh, important and it's uh, critical with the cliches and the myths where it's important. And this was the idea sort of, it's more or less divided into three parts, the four, like four parts. The let's say four parts. The first part is, I mean, the, the very first thing is the forward by uh, Dr. Melanie Joy, which I'm very grateful for. So she uh, wrote the, the excellent forward to it. Then we have a chapter uh, that deals with the question why do some nutrition authorities um, recommend a vegan diet for every stage of the life cycle as we see it in Portugal, Canada, United States, UK and why do some authorities like in Germany, Austria, Switzerland and other countries do not recommend a vegan diet for all stages of life cycle. This is a large topic that I um, dealt with in the, in the first chapter. Then a uh, large second part is the, the German Nutrition Authority names 10 critical nutrients for a vegan diet um, and I uh, devoted a whole chapter to each critical nutrients to really deal with every single small issue on, on this very nutrient. And uh, the third quarter is uh, about the five main uh, food groups of a vegan diet and the cliches that surrounds them. So. Uh, yeah, whole grains are great, but what about gluten? What about the paleo diet that mm -hmm. forbids uh, grains? Uh, yeah, whole grain um, legumes are great, but what about the anti-nutrients? Uh, what about soy, etc.? Oh, by uh, soy is last chapter, so it's not about soy, but it's about all the other um, myths surrounding uh, legumes. Then, uh, yeah, fruits are great, but what about the fruit sugar? Will it make uh, fatty liver disease, etc.? And what about the fructose overload? And then about the nuts? Great, but what about the aflatoxins? What about uh, nuts make you gain weight, etc., etc.? Uh, what about the cruciferous vegetables and thyroid glands? So all these uh, myths regarding the food groups. And then the last uh, chapter is uh, my bachelor thesis on soy. Of course, um, in a not uh, so much academic way like the bachelor thesis, but the, the 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 content is the same. So all these myths that we discussed about soy and many many others as well. And the the starting point for each um, for each chapter was I took out all the myths that you can read in different books or also quote them so that people can actually see where these myths are coming from mm -hmm. and then I take a look what the actual science says about it. So I'm not only delivering some information and then you read this information then you go to another book and say oh this book says something completely differently some, something completely different but you already have the different opinion and then you see why this opinion is not based in, in actual science. So that was the idea behind it. It was crazy that I mean it's really a science uh, based book but it did so well people really appreciated it there's going to be an additional cookbook with a German chef called Sebastian Kubin uh, in February next year and another book on cliches in terms of ethics and environmental things as well but it's the first one and it's going to be translated hopefully an end of quarter, the first quarter 2020 amazing looking forward to reading it in English it sounds very thorough and uh, a bit of a handbook that we could all use when we're in the midst of these heated discussions around nutrition so thank you for making it Oh, it was. I would say it was a great pleasure, but actually it was not so much a great pleasure. It really took a lot of time, but it's a great pleasure to have it out. And uh, I'm so grateful for the people who enjoy it. And the cool thing is that with the success of the book, of course, the mainstream publishers again came 
pun or across the vegan topic and they're now way more interested in vegan books we had uh, way more tv appearances because of the book so i think it served us all quite well and i'm glad that people like it so yeah the the book is in the translation already it's coming out uh, probably end of the first quarter 2020 or in the beginning of the second quarter and the additional cookbook that is released in february hopefully will come out in english also pretty soon and there's a third book in the making that probably will come out pretty soon in english as well What is the healthiest tea that doesn't downgrade your iron absorption? Again, like the, the healthiest teas just downgrade your uh, mineral absorption because some of the healthy compounds are the very same compounds that uh, downgrade your absorption. So you just want to make sure that you're not, if your, for example, iron, um, iron status is critical, you just want to make sure that you don't drink your black tea and your green tea uh, together with your meals. Uh, Sophie Vinek says, how good are avocados for your body? Great. <laughs> uh, Lenart107 says Hey Nico, what is your prediction on the future of seaweeds as a source of our nutrition? Mm, I think it has great potential definitely um, but I feel like it will take a couple more years until it's really a big topic Inspiration by Katha says Do vegans need to cleanse with enemas regularly? So as far as I'm concerned, uh, no. And as far as I'm concerned, the downsides can be quite severe if you do it improperly. So I'm not a big fan of it, but I'm not an expert on this field. So maybe you want to ask an expert. Discountess says, hey, Nico, I want to become a vegan nutritionist. Where should I start? Study. <laughs> <laughs> where is good to study? Yeah, it depends where you're living at. Uh, in, in Germany, you want to get a bachelor degree and you want to visit as many... Uh, additional congresses as you can, read as many books as you can, spend as much time as you can on PubMed and you should not be disappointed if you don't learn a lot of important things while you're studying the bachelor. And one last one, what's the difference between a nutritionist and a dietitian? Um, again, probably this is the, the definition differs between different countries. Um, like I would say in general you have nutrition scientists and nutritional therapy let's say you have nutrition scientists on the one hand that are really into the research area and they're not really counseling people and then you have the dietitians nutritionists um, nutrition counselors nutritional therapists etc that are working with people mainly and maybe are not so much focused into the studying but it, it's just terms so the terms differ so much even between uh, Germany and Austria and okay. most likely between other countries as well um, I think the important thing is that in Germany at least the, the term dietitian is not regulated by law so anyone can be or let's say like the, the term nutritionist mm -hmm. it's not regulated by law so anyone can be a nutritionist so you gotta pay attention who are you uh, talking to and maybe the term dietitian is more regulated in some countries i feel mm -hmm. like in the states that's the case Same in the uk right yeah? Mm -hmm. yeah so i think that's the, the the main difference nutritionist and dietitian but at the end if it's, it's all names so the question is what has the person done so far right Before I let you go, I always ask everyone this question. If you were stuck on a desert island uh -huh. and it was just you and a pig, ah. <laughs> you know this question. Happens, happens quite a lot. Uh -huh. So you're on this desert island and you can't get off. But I, if I would allow you to have one vegan dish, mm -hmm. one vegan dish, one book mm -hmm. um, and one music album, what would you take with you? The vegan dish that I would have, it's there's a, a guy called Kenji Lopez Alt. I hope I pronounce him correctly. Um, and his, his blog is called Serious Eat. He's totally not uh, vegan or even vegan conscious, but he's doing uh, some vegan dishes and he has this awesome recipe for vegan bolognese. So like, a, um, yeah, is this an English word, bolognese? Yeah. Um, and I 
incorporated this recipe also in one of my videos. I changed it a little bit, uh, but this is like the best recipe for bolognese or like this is the best dish I've eaten for a long time and I hope I can have this on the island. Yeah, without further ado, I think it would be uh, any book of, of Dr. Michael Reger because I feel like he's the most influential uh, person on the planet. But, um, so I, I just have to name him, but I would name a second one because I feel like this book is in another way important for many people it's called catching fire from dr richard rangham from harvard because he is like i, I really get my, my whole approach on nutrition changed after reading this book so you gotta read it yeah and your music album there's just one album of course i'm listening to a lot of german music but if there's just one english album it's uh, the uh, vegan ep one to three with all english songs <laughs> so i can at least support a good cause while dying on an island Thank you, Nico, for joining us on the PBN podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, for hosting me, having me, um, whatever. It was a great pleasure. Um, you're doing so much great work. I'm really a big fan of all Thank your you. work. So keep on doing your thing. We could have probably talked for another hour. We could. <laughs> Hopefully we will in the future. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN podcast. We'll be back next time with more veganism, health, fashion, technology, food, nutrition, and everything in between.